Okay. So, is the Bible clear? Okay. Uh, can somebody fix that sign? It's crooked and it's going to bother me the whole night. So, so is that a yes or a no? Okay, if, if it's a qualifier, yes. Depends. Anybody want to vote no? The Bible is not clear. Anybody? Nobody wants to raise their hand. Nobody's brave enough. Um, okay, Alec. The Bible is not clear. Uh, we're we're, we're going to get into a passage today. Those of you who are visiting, um, welcome to a weird topic tonight, by the way. Um, that is arguably, actually not even arguably, that most people, most scholars believe this is the most confusing section that Paul writes in, in the Bible. Um, and that we're going to get into it. And so, in that sense, the Bible's not clear. Um, I'm going to say a whole lot of nothing and then sit down, basically. Um, but in, in, in another sense, the Bible is clear. Like Haley said, it, when God gives you the eyes to see, it's, it's clear. And so what we're going we're gonna to talk, we're going to get into this and kind of see whether or not this, this passage of Scripture is clear. Is it confusing? Yes. But is it clear? Let's wait and see. So turn to 2 Thessalonians 2, starting 1 through 12. Eric Buss, can you read loudly? Yes, wait, okay, wait. Okay, wait, wait. He's my all-time designated reader. And something's missing. Ah, Anthony. That's his missing. He's in Philadelphia. All right. Read, read verses 1 through 3a. Okay. okay. It's the first sentence in, in verse 3. Alright. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. Okay. These verses are actually pretty clear. In fact, they're not just clear, they're actually what I believe to be the whole point of why Paul is, is writing this, this letter, to the second letter to the Thessalonians. Um, he's answering a question that they're asking. Okay? We, we've talked about this before, that there was persecution going on. In fact, it inc- had increased from in between the first letter and the second letter. There seems to be more of it. And Paul is addressing that and encouraging them. And then he's a- answering this question. There's clearly, there's a question that's been asked or there's, a, or there's a, an issue that's been raised to Paul and he's addressing it here. In fact, he answers it. In these three verses, he answers um, their question. And the question is, has the day of the Lord come? Has Jesus returned? Did we miss it? So in, in 1 Thessalonians 5.2, it says this, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And they're going, did he come? Did we miss it? Are we being punished? This, this is like a real question because like, th- th- apparently when he says, do not be shaken in mind or alarmed, um, do, not be, do not be deceived, he says, um, don't, don't hear, don't listen to any of that stuff if it's, if it's coming spiritually or via spoken word or a letter. 
Um, and so he's, apparently there's those that are spreading rumors that Jesus has returned and, and they've missed it. They missed the boat. And so now they're stuck in this world without Christ and, and they're being punished. And so this is a real concern. So Paul addresses it. Paul's very, very clear about his answer. He tells them he has not come. He, he urges them not to be deceived about rumors about Christ's return, no matter how they come, right? Spiritually spoken letters. Then he reminds them of what they already, what they already know, what he had already told them, um, and that these certain events must happen. So we're, we'll get into that in a second. But, but basically, he answers their question. He deals with their, their issue, and he's very clear about it. And, and essentially, and he's not saying it here, but a case could be made if you look at Scripture um, that, that the return of Christ should never produce fear and anxiety, but ultimately hope and joy. So, that's the clear part. Okay, The clear part's over. Now, the confusing part. Uh, whether or not it's clear or not, we'll, we'll talk about that. But the confusing part is just about to begin. So, read 3b through 8. For that day will not come, unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called god or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed at his time. But the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Okay. Clear as mud? Um, or is it? Is it, conf- is it clear or not clear? So that, that's to be determined. Now, before we get into this, you need to know uh, and, and, I'll, and I'll explain what I mean here in a little bit, but there is controversy at, at, on almost every line of those verses. There's, there's, there's a eight or nine different words that there is debate about what they mean, and depending on what they mean, completely changes the, the, the interpretation of this text. So, so when I say, like, this is a confusing section, it's confusing. Um... So, a couple things I want to point out that, uh, that, that are in this text that you need to be aware of. Um, there's language used here that would have been language they were familiar with from the Old Testament, specifically Isaiah and Daniel. And Isaiah 14, 13-14 says this. This was spoken about um, King Neb- Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? Isaiah 14 says this. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will, set, I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Okay, that's, that's Isaiah quoting um, King Nebuchadnezzar, kind of describing his arrogance and, and how he thought he was um, God. Okay, this is, uh, this is Daniel 11, 36-37 spoken about the king of the north. This is a different time. This is fast forward uh, maybe a couple hundred years-ish, a few hundred years. 
This is to, to when Daniel's day, and he's quoting about this, the king of the north. And it says, And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and, and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall, shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to, to, the, to the one beloved by women. He shall pay no attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. So there's no doubt that um, Paul is referring to, uh, you know, possibly actually, referring to leaders from of old, um, men who, who, delusional men who would rise up in power and think that so, so highly of themselves that they would refer to themselves as God. And then, and then you have to think about Paul's day with uh, the different Caesars that would come on. Caesar is Lord. And, and, and he would be bowed down to worship. And so, um, there is a pattern of history, throughout all of history, of delusional men rising up in, in power and, and seeking to be worshipped and, and be seen as God. And, and uh, the question is, is that what Paul is referring to? I mean, the, the language is there. It's similar to what's been talked about. There's even other verses that we could look at from this section that, maybe refer to some Old Testament imagery. But um, is that what he's referring to? Possibly, and maybe not. That's kind of my conclusion about everything, by the way. So, there is debate about everything. So, let me, let me get into all the different words and phrases that are debated and why, why they matter, okay? So, I'm just going to go down through. The word rebellion, okay, in verse 3, is the word apostasy. And apostasy is this idea of fallen away or um, abandoned or rebelled or whatever. And some think that this word, okay, this, uh, so I'm giving you kind of a conclusion to what people think this word means and why it changes things. Some, pe- some think it means the world's rebellion, okay, as a bad thing. And then there's others that think that this might mean of Christians' rebellions against the world as a good thing. Those are two totally different things. And the implications of those are, are totally different. Is this the world's rebellion? That like like uh, a bunch of just, you know, Tower of Babel type of scene, right? People just getting together and we're going to make a name for ourselves. And, or is this the Christians rebelling against the world and, and leaving, leaving the world to be with Christ? The word man, well, man of lawlessness, okay, that's the big one. The word literally is sin, man of sin or man of lawlessness. Who is he? Is he a real person? Is he um, a representation or a figurehead of, of the, the, this rebellion? Is he a worldwide figure that, that's, that's going to rise up and everyone will know about? And, or is he a first century man, a specific person in history? Um, is he the Antichrist? Okay, that's, a, that's another one um, that is, is brought up. Is he the Antichrist? The, the next phrase, again, I'm not giving you answers here. The next phrase is temple of God. Is this a, re- is this a reference to someone actually literally going into the temple in Jerusalem and setting up the, their throne? Or is this, this temple of God representing like this... Um, like a figurative picture of the throne of the world. 
right? So those are two, di two different things. And depending on how you interpret it, um, it has, has two different meanings to what's going on here. The restrainer. Is there, the person, the, there seems to be someone who's restraining the man of lawlessness to come. Is this restrainer a good guy or a bad guy? Is, is this God restraining? Or is this a first century figure restraining? Those are options that, that, that came up as I studied this. Again, totally different. Lord Jesus in verse 8. The word Jesus is actually kind of controversial. Um, because in many manuscripts, the word Jesus isn't there. In fact, if you go to Blue Letter Bible, anybody, you guys know what Blue Letter Bible is? It's a really great website that helps you kind of, if, if you want a basic introduction into um, Greek words, okay, if you want to look up a word and understand what this Greek word is and what the definition of it is and how it appears in other places in the New Testament, Blue Letter Bible, okay? Blue Letter Bible, if you click on this verse, the word Jesus isn't in the original Greek. Just the word Lord. So why does that matter? Well, if it's just Lord, it could be referring to God. If it's, if it's Lord Jesus, then it's most likely referring to, maybe referring to, the second coming of Jesus. So if it's just God coming to bring judgment, He does that all the time throughout, throughout history. If it's the Lord Jesus coming, like the second coming that's a very specific event in the future, and, and those are two different things. Okay? His coming. Actually, the, very, the last couple words of verse 8 and the first couple words of verse 9. Depending on how you read, whether or not this is about Jesus, uh, some think that the His coming is about Jesus' coming, and then, the, and then verse 9 starts with the man of lawlessness coming. And others see it as the same. His coming is Him being the man of lawlessness coming. And then verse 9 continues that thought, the coming of Him. Two totally different meanings, two totally different interpretations that have, an imp have implications that are completely different. Um, God sending a strong delusion. Uh, again, there's not, we don't know exactly what that means, but depending on how you interpret everything else, it, mean, it could either mean it's, it's a first century thing or it's an it's a, uh, end of the world future issue. Okay? So those are, just the, those are the majority of the, the controversial things in this section that make it seem confusing. So here's what we know. Let me give you what we know and what we don't know. What we know is that some, some in the church believe that the Lord had already arrived, the uh, second thing we know is that Paul says he has not arrived and to not believe people when they say such things. Okay? So with that, we know for sure. This is what was going on. He reminds them of what he told them already. So look at verse 5. Verse 5 is key. He had already told them these things. He didn't feel the need to have to explain it again. So there was a shared understanding, which is huge. Whenever you're interpreting the Bible, you've got to recognize between the author and the audience there's a shared understanding that most likely we aren't in on. We're reading someone else's mail. Okay? And so, Paul doesn't feel the need to have to explain it because he's not planning on us reading it. He's planning on people who, who know what he's talking about reading it. You have to read it from that perspective. We also know that he describes a man of lawlessness, the man of lawlessness's wow, character 
Um, but there's even debate about whether or not his, the character he's describing depends on how you interpret him, who you think he is. Okay? Um, a lot of times, and we can, sometimes we can read things into it. For instance, well, I'll get to that in a second. Now, the fifth thing we know is Jesus will conquer all. Now, what we don't know is whether or not this text actually teaches that or not. Because depending on whether or not you think verse 8 is talking about the Lord Jesus returning or not, if it's the Lord Jesus returning and killing him by the breath of his mouth, which, by the way, is an Old Testament phrase, uh, then it is about Jesus conquering. But if, it's not, if that's not Jesus he's referring to, then this text isn't teaching that, but because we know he does conquer all, I can say it with confidence. Jesus conquers all. You guys clear yet? Um, here's, what we, here's what we don't know. Uh, we don't know who the man of lawlessness is and if he's the Antichrist. The word Antichrist isn't anywhere in this text, but it is often very much associated. I, 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 read, a, I read a commentary that said, um, after kind of explaining certain things, said clearly he's teaching that, the, this is the commentary I use the most, Clearly, he's teaching that this is the, the Antichrist and the beast in Revelation 13. And it was like, whoa, how'd you, jump, how'd you get there? And Because I would just read it and go, I don't see. But from what I guess we talk about the Antichrist being, maybe, maybe he, I guess maybe that is. Maybe he is. But we don't know. Uh, number two, we don't know what the man of lawlessness is going to do specifically. Number three, we don't know who the restrainer is and why this person is restraining or how. Um, again, we don't know if this is about the second coming of Jesus or not. Um, we don't know if this is a future event, a future event that the people in Thessalonica would witness, or whether or not this is a future event that that um, hasn't happened yet. Okay, so we, those are things we don't know, which are kind of the, the majority of things. So, is Paul clear? Yes or no? I think he's clear. I think he's perfectly clear because of verse 5. Again, he's clear because he's writing to an audience that understands what he's saying. He's writing to an audience that has a shared understanding. So the answer is yes. Paul is clear because um, Paul understands uh, the, the people who, who are receiving this message understand what Paul is saying clearly, because there was no further need to explain. So we have to assume that they understood what he meant. Um, so it, it, this is why it's more important, um, whenever you're studying the Bible, to think, put yourself in the, the shoes of the audience receiving, and, and think of yourself as them, and not as you first, Okay. Because it's easy to read this and go, okay, Paul, what are you trying to say to us? Like, is it, is it Obama? Is it, is it, uh, was it Hitler? Um, is it Oprah? Uh, I mean, is it uh, Trump? Um, so, like, is it some foreign leader? Is it some person we don't know yet that's maybe rising up in the ranks and we're going to hear about later? So when we, when we kind of come to the Bible with these, like, I want to know when the end of the world is coming, and I'm going to go to these texts like in Revelation and, and Second 
Thessalonians and um, I guess those are the, really the only two. And, and go, okay, I'm going to try to figure this out. I'm going to figure out how the end is coming and where it's coming. We, 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 can, we can have a tendency to read things into the text that maybe, that maybe aren't there. Or maybe they are. Uh, maybe Paul is giving some clues to what's going to happen. Clearly he had some insight that we don't have. Um, but what I want to challenge you before, I, before we move on is, like, this is what I want to ask. Are you okay with difficult passages remaining difficult? Are you okay with, with not getting to the bottom, not having every answer, every, sorry, every question answered? And if you're, if you're normal, the answer is no. We're not really okay with that. Um, but God seems to be okay with it. At least He seems to be okay with us not having clarity on what, or yeah, us being confused about what Paul is saying in Second Thessalonians. He seems to be okay with that. If He wasn't okay with it, it would be clear. Because think about the things in Scripture that are clear. Okay? The life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. Very clear. You can't, you can't read a page in the New Testament without being reminded of one of those things. Of the implications of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So, so, so there's things that are clear. Something I learned in a class I took in college, actually that Jim Johnson taught, was that there are some texts we can get dead center. We know exactly what the, the author intended to mean. We know. Others, we can get pretty close. We can look at, we can get, uh, you know, look at 10 or 12 different verses in different books of the Bible and, and kind of reach to this conclusion. We can understand, we can have a pretty good understanding of, of the judgment of God or, or the character of God. I mean, there's, we can kind of do some work and see there's these parallel verses that teach us these things and I think we get pretty close then there's the man of lawlessness. It's like way out here in this outer rim. Like that's the closest we can get. And so the famous Augustine quote, uh, I didn't bring, famous Augustine quote is this, I'll paraphrase, essentially is, after all my study of who the man of lawlessness, lawlessness is, I can honestly say I have no idea. I mean, that, <laughs> uh, Drew was laughing because he was reading um, another smart guy's, this whole chapter on this, on this, uh, on this study, on whether or not who, who the man of lawlessness is, the very last paragraph was basically the same thing. He quotes Augustine, but he says, I, agree, I just have to agree with Augustine. After all my work and all my study, I can honestly say I don't know who he is. And, and so, we get here. The question is, are we okay with that? Like, are we okay with questions not being answered? And because I think there is something in us that wants things to be clear and, want, and, and easy um, at some level, so that we can be remain in control, and we don't have to trust. And so there, there's there's a part of that. So whenever you come, to, whenever you approach a, a scripture, and and it's not clear to you, and, and it's, you don't understand it, um, there could be a lot of reasons. There could be you need to do some work, and you need to like read parallel passages, and you need to understand the literary context, and you need to understand the historical context. And you need, you need to do your work to get to an answer. Like, there is an answer, and you just need to, do, you need to do some work instead of just going, I read it once, and I don't understand it. And so now I'm mad. Um, 
sometimes the, the things may not be clear because we, we've approached the Bible going, I'm not going to do what this says unless I like it. And so sometimes our hearts can, can cloud us from the clarity of Scripture. And then other times, it's the man of lawlessness. And you can do as much work as you want. And you can have, a, you can have opinion, an opinion about it. Drew's going to get up here and actually give us an opinion. Um, he's going to give us a, a, an answer that he doesn't have a whole lot of confidence in, but he's going to give us one uh, that, that I, think is, I think is pretty good. So, so that's the question. But the big question, back to, back to the man of lawlessness, the big question is whether or not this is referring to a first century figure or a futuristic figure that hasn't come. That's the big question. Is this, is this somebody that, that, they, that they would witness and see, or is this somebody that is for future that he was describing? We'll let Drew answer that question. 9 through 12. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all the power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Okay. So, the part that surprises me about this again is not maybe not the part that's uh, that surprises you um, I'm not surprised that God would send what does it say them a strong delusion this seems to be actually pretty consistent with the God of the Bible um, the God who after hundreds of years of the Israelites purposely chasing after other idols forgetting their covenant disobeying him uh, ignoring his commands, him saying, okay, I'm going to raise up enemy people and I'm going to let them take you over. I'm going to let them make you slaves so that you will finally wake up and repent and turn back to me. Okay, this is, this is who God is. He so, cares so much about our hearts that he's willing to let us suffer a little bit in, so that we'll turn to him uh, in the midst of our rebellion. Uh, this, this is the... The God who, who authors, ultimately, Romans 1, 18-32, which talks about God giving people over to the desires of their heart, essentially giving people over to their selfish and sinful um, desires. And it reminds me of this, the C.S. Lewis quote. Uh, it says, there are two types of, he says, there are two types of people. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those whom God says to them, thy will be done. In other words, like, ultimately God, like if you, if you consistently choose not to follow God and to like chase things that you want, one of the most dangerous things that could happen is God giving you what you want. Um, and that seems to be what's taking place here. They, they refuse to love the truth. And therefore, therefore, God gives them more reason to not believe the truth, to have what they want. He gives them what they want. And, and their pleasure in righteousness is ultimately what condemns them. And so that's, that seems to be what's, what's describing me. So the part that actually surprises me is 
depending on how you interpret this, it means two different things, <laughs> as, as is consistent with the rest of this chapter. Um, so, whether or not, again, whether or not this is a first century event that happened, a very specific event that took place, or whether or not this is the end of the world kind of event, um, and this is the, the big battle of Armageddon, or this is the, you know, those kinds of things. It, it, those are two different things, and so the implications are, are, are different. All right, that's all the clarity that I can bring. So we're going to take a break, and Drew's going to give us all the answers. I heard it, yeah. Sweet. Heard some sound. Works. Yeah, I actually, when I first, I started pulling too, and I was like, dang it, I hope I didn't just short it out. Okay. So we have worship. Have you talked to them? Have you talked to Abby and Abby and... I haven't. Partly because I don't know what I'm doing. Um... Yeah, I'll invite you guys up at the right time, so... Hey, ma'am. Have I met you? I don't know. I'm Drew. Ian. Ian and what was it? Abby. Abby. Ian and Abby. Where are you guys from? Emerald. Both of you? Emerald? Yeah. Okay. Sweet. Sweet. What, uh, what year in school you guys? Freshman. Okay. This, this is always an awkward question. Friends, boyfriend, girlfriends. Okay. Gotcha. Sorry. It's, it's better if I... Better than like uh, twins, and I call you boyfriend or girlfriend or something like that. Be, yeah. Uh, so, so how'd you guys hear about the table? Uh, well, we were just trying out chairs like last semester, and, stuff, and uh, we decided we wanted to keep going to Chamber. Okay. Semester. Sweet. Like, we went to school and heard about it. So, okay. He told me about it more. Like, been there, like, okay. Like, awesome. Like, okay. Sweet. Sweet. So you've come to Sunday school some? You've come to the Sunday Okay. Awesome. Cool. Cool. Yeah, I'm usually not in there, so I'm sure I haven't met you, but good to meet you now. So glad you guys are here. Thank you. All right. Quick announcement.
for you guys. For those of you who are going to Albuquerque. After the 9.30 and then after the 11, yeah, so. Yeah, our uh, head chef is like teaches the culinary stuff at Meridian Tech, so it's good food he's making, and you'll help people go do missions work, so I hope you can come to that. Um, all right, now to give you all the answers. Um, I've actually been working out a system where I'm going to say something like, uh, I've concluded that the man of lawlessness is, and then Alex is going to pull a fire alarm, and I could just bolt out of here. That was kind of, that was the plan midway through the week, but I'm going to try what we can do here. So, um, hey, it's worth saying this. Yes, this is a passage that is not necessarily the clearest, but, um, and, and yes, it seems like God is okay with us not having this figured out perfectly, but it is a passage that God determined needed to be in your Bible. Like, you know this, right, that Paul wrote a number of letters that didn't get in your Bible, that God determined didn't need to be in there. And, and Paul and John and Peter wrote things that didn't all make it in our scriptures, but God decided that this needed to be here. God decided that this is one that he was going to make sure got passed on and got preserved so that it would be um, read by us. And so there is, even if we may not be able to get quite to the point, there's something going on behind the screens above my head, or isn't there? Um, so there's, there's, even if we can't get right to the middle of it, there's like, God intends for us to read it. God intends for us to study it. I'll wait for a second while we get this sorted out. <laughs> this is incredibly interesting. No, I see, I can see why you would rather be looking at click to add title than me. That makes me feel a lot better. Are we good? Where's one of those wasps in here? Can I get a wasp? Okay. All right. So it is also true, though, that there's been a lot of confusion about this. This is what one commentator, Leon Morris, says. This passage is probably the most obscure and difficult in the whole of the Pauline writings. And, and basically everybody I read said the same thing. Um, Scott mentioned Augustine. This is his exact quote. Um, not a great one if you're trying to instill confidence in your readers. Um, I frankly confess I do not know what he means. Um, and, and so that's how he ends this. But there, and there are actually there are a handful of passages like this in the Scripture where we have to recognize, we have to come to them, and we do our work to try and interpret it, but we interpret it with an amount of humility. 
that says I don't fully, I don't fully get this. And, and this one is, is kind of near the top of the list of one where we, we give it our best shot and we really do want to try to get to the root of this, but we come to it with um, a bit of humility and, and not try to, we, we kind of admit we can only figure out so much, but um, that has not prevented people from really, really trying. Here's the rest of the, the Morris quote. So the first part is, this passage is probably the most obscure and difficult in the whole of the Pauline writings. And the many gaps in our knowledge have given rise to extravagant speculation. And that is true. Um, that it's one of those things where we haven't known, and yet I think a lot of people throughout church history have not necessarily come to it with a lot of humility sometimes. And they have come with a lot of confidence that they know exactly what Paul is talking about. And, and it has caused uh, a number of problems. Many who read this passage, and I would say actually probably most who read 2 Thessalonians 2, agree that Paul is talking about the coming Antichrist. This figure that will come at the end of history and will mount up a, a, a worldwide government or a worldwide movement or a religion that will work against Christ and his kingdom that will cause a period of tribulation on the earth. And then eventually Jesus will come and end that. This is, when, when read this, every, every commentary I read, except for one actually, says the same thing that Scott said, um, refers to this person as the Antichrist. And so most of the scholars, people I respect greatly, call this person the coming Antichrist. But there are at least three problems with doing that. Um, the first one, when we read the man of lawlessness as an end times antichrist that is coming, the first problem is that it causes us to assume many things about this text that are not really there. It causes us to assume a lot of things that Paul never actually says. First and foremost is the fact that antichrist isn't in the text. Um, that word doesn't make it into 2 Thessalonians or 1 Thessalonians or anywhere else in the scriptures except where? First John. Most people, you say, where, where would you go to learn about the Antichrist? Everybody would say Revelation. It's not in there. It's only in one book in the Bible, and that is First John, the only place where we get the idea of the Antichrist from. And here is where we read this thing. So, First um, uh, John two eighteen through nineteen. I'll just say, and, and those of you who are in table groups, we we gave you three passages to read this week: Second Thessalonians two. 1 John 2, but there's also 1 John 4, and there's 2 John talks about the Antichrist, um, and then Revelation 13, which talks about the beast coming out of the sea. And, and most people read those three things as the same thing. Uh, the man of lawlessness is the Antichrist, is the beast coming out of the sea, and then the whole number 666 and all that stuff, the mark of the beast, uh, all of that going together. But here's what John says about the Antichrist in 1 John 2, verses 18 through 19. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Here's another passage there where he talks about it. 1 John 4, verses 2 through 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. 
Now flip over to 2 John. There's only one chapter, so 2 John 7 is verse 7 there. It says this, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. So this is what John says. John talks about the Antichrist a number of places, and, and this is John's clarification of what the Antichrist is. First, the Antichrist is many people, actually, not one, but many. Second is that the Antichrists have already come. That when John is writing this, the Antichrists are already in the world. And I think John would say, and continue to be in the world, even up to this day. And third, this is the definition of someone who is Antichrist. They deny that Jesus has come in the flesh. What John is actually writing against in, that, in this time is, is what we call like proto-Gnosticism. So Gnosticism was the first major heresy that got battled in early church history. Proto meaning kind of before, like early forms of it. And the idea was that everything spiritual in the world is good. God is spiritual. He is good. Everything physical is bad. It is a um, shallow, shady, dirty reflection of the ultimate reality, which is spiritual. And so if everything spiritual is good, and if everything physical is bad, then clearly the Son of God could not have come in a physical body. He must have, there's different kind of ideas about this, that either he came and he just appeared to have a physical body, but he was really more like kind of a spirit hologram thing, something like that. Um, uh, like that Tupac Shakur like uh, hologram thing going around, like that was, that was what was going on there. Or, uh, or, that, or that he, that there was a man named Jesus and the spirit of the Christ came on that man, but before that man died on a cross, because you can't actually kill God, that that spirit left the man Jesus while he was on the cross before he died. Because you couldn't actually have the Son of God physically in a physical body and suffering in that body and dying in that body. And John says that is anti-Christ. That is anti-God. No, the core of our message is that God came and put on flesh to become like us so that he could pay for our sin in our place and then defeat our death in that very same body to be resurrected in that. And so John says that's anti-Christ. Anyone who says that Jesus did not come in the flesh. So John would actually probably say that there are churches here in Stillwater that are anti-Christ. They have the anti-Christ. There are churches in Stillwater who deny that the Son of God came in the flesh. And so John would look at them and say, anti-Christ. The anti-Christ is here. Um, the anti-Christ is about a block or two away from us. Um, you guys can all do the GPS in your head for a second. We'll talk about that later. Um, that, there are, that there are churches who deny that, that anyone who does that is Antichrist. And so all three of these things don't seem to match up with what Paul is talking about in First uh, Thessalonians, in 2 Thessalonians 2. Um, people, as I said, also match them up with the beast of Revelation 13. I believe strongly that the beast of Revelation 13 is not an individual person, but the beast of Revelation 13 is a group. In fact, it is an empire, and that that empire is not a future coming empire, that that is an empire that already rose to power, was in power when the book of Revelation was written, and has long since gone away. And so, uh, I don't believe that what Paul is talking about here in this passage um, is the same thing as John talking about in Revelation 13. That's another lesson for another day, and we can talk about that at some point, but um, not tonight. So, so, but people read these things into it, and because of what it says in Revelation 13, that the whole world gathered together to worship the beast, that people read it into 2 Thessalonians. So we read one of the commentators, one of the smartest dudes in the world that like is kind of one of the most... Uh, 
guy by the name of John Stott, who's recognized as maybe the greatest evangelical scholar of the 20th century. I love John Stott. Everything says, but John Stott keeps talking about in his commentary this worldwide movement that the man of lawlessness is going to have. And so I go back and I look at the text. There's nothing in there about a worldwide movement. There's nothing in there about a global, he says rebellion, but the word like global or, or around the world or anything, nothing gets mentioned in there. What I think is happening is that we take these other texts and these other ideas about what's going to happen and we read them into that. Um, we talk about the great persecution that the man of lawlessness is going to bring on the church during this period of tribulation. Um, there's nothing in Second Thessalonians 2 about persecution. It's something that we read into it. We make these assumptions about it without actually looking at the text itself. Here's what the text does actually say. This is what we can say with some amount of certainty, and Scott touched on this. The first is that the coming of Jesus will not come until after the rebellion. Paul does not say what the rebellion is, and this is important. Paul does not say how long after the rebellion the coming of Jesus will take place. He merely says that this has to happen before Jesus will come. So don't, don't, don't assume right off the bat that um, Jesus' coming comes right on the heels of this rebellion. Number two, it says that this man is a lawless one. That he is, um, that's where that, that name or lawlessness comes from. That he is against law. And that could be against moral law. That could be against civil law. Probably a little bit of both. Kind of arising up against both the idea of moral truth and, and also maybe against civil law in that time. It says, uh, or number three, we know this, that he sets himself up as God, taking his seat in the temple of God. But as Scott said to you, both of those statements could be figurative to set himself up as God. It might not mean that he's officially saying, I am God. It might just mean that he's trying to claim a lot of authority. And to say that he sets himself in the temple of God might not be the physical, literal temple of God. Um, it could be that he's, it could be Paul's figurative way of saying like he's trying to take God's worship. In the same way that if we said he tries to sit on God's throne, we don't mean he's literally sitting on God's throne in heaven. It just means he's trying to take God's place of authority. And so it could be figurative. Here's kind of an issue. Those who believe that this is an end times antichrist, they have a problem if Paul is talking about a literal temple because the literal temple doesn't exist anymore. And that's why there are a lot of people who, who really get excited about news that maybe the temple's going to get rebuilt again soon because they need the temple to get rebuilt again soon if their vision of Second Thessalonians is going to happen um, because there's got to be a temple for this guy to set himself up in. Um, number four, we know this, that something and or someone is restraining him in A.D. 51 when Paul writes. Paul says there is something right now restraining him. Um, and it happens in AD 51, and the Thessalonians know who or what it is. Paul says, I told you what's restraining him. Um, now, the reason I say something and or someone is because Paul does something kind of interesting here. In verse 6, he uses the noun, this restrainer, to describe him. In the Greek, um, uses both mass, or uses all three, masculine, feminine, and neuter endings to its nouns and its verbs. It's a neuter ending in verse 6, which means it's, um, Paul is talking about an it. A thing. The restrainer is a thing. It is a it. It is an organization of some kind. But when he gets to verse 7 and he talks about um, this person who's doing the restraining, he uses a masculine ending on the verb. So that sounds like a he. Um, Paul uses both he and it in it. So that's why I say someone 
and something, or someone and or something. Um, We know verse 5, that when the restrainer is removed, the man of lawlessness will be revealed. And number 6, we know that the Lord will kill him once he's revealed. Um, uh, Sorry, Scott mentioned that there's a little bit of debate over that phrase, the appearance of his coming, whether that refers to the second coming of Jesus or whether that just refers to the coming of the man of lawlessness. Um, so those are the things we know, but we don't know tons beyond it. Um, but, but so I, I said this, that when we assume for this person to be an end times antichrist figure, it causes three problems. The first I just said is we put a lot of assumptions into the text that aren't there. The second problem it causes is that it causes a lot of speculations that have made the church look foolish. It causes a lot of speculations throughout history. For over 1,500 years, people have been confidently stating that they know who the Antichrist is. That they know who the person is, always naming some contemporary figure that they're standing next to. Michael Holmes in his commentary gives a list, and this is not exhaustive. Here are the different people who have been called the Antichrist, who have been confidently labeled as the Antichrist. Various Roman emperors have been called the Antichrist. The Vandal invaders, when they came and sacked Rome, were called the Antichrist. Muhammad was deemed to be the Antichrist. Various popes, the papacy itself, Emperor Frederick II called Pope Gregory the Ninth the Antichrist, and at the exact same time, Pope Gregory the Ninth called him the Antichrist. Um, so all the Reformation people were calling the popes the Antichrist. The popes were calling Martin Luther, the leader of the Reformation, the Antichrist. King George II of England, Napoleon Bonaparte, Napoleon III. In the American Civil War, the North called the South the Antichrist, and the South called the North the Antichrist. Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany, the League of Nations, Adolf Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, King Fasile of Saudi Arabia, the United Nations, Khrushchev, the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, and he had this weird birthmark on his face that literally people called the mark of the beast. They knew that dude is Antichrist because he's got the mark of the beast on him. Um, King Juan Carlos of Spain, Pope John Paul II, Anwar Sadat, the Ayatollah Kahimi, Yasser Arafat, Saddam Hussein, the New Age Movement, theologian Matthew Fox, Henry Kissinger, former President Jimmy Carter, and Ronald Wilson Reagan, because Ronald, six letters, Wilson, six letters, Reagan, six letters. Barack Obama has been called the Antichrist, and I was about to say if it hasn't yet, but Scott already threw it out there. Donald Trump has now been labeled the Antichrist. Um, so uh, so it, it, will, it will go there, and, and throughout time, like every time, for 1,500 years, every time someone has confidently said, this is it, and every time they've been wrong, and yet every year someone else comes out and says, yeah, but I totally got it figured out this time, Right? Um, yeah, but everyone else is being wrong. Yeah, they're all idiots, but I, I cracked the code. I'm the one after 1,500 years who knows who the exact person is, and so they come up with some new idea of who the Antichrist is. This makes us look silly as a church, and it kind of makes God's Word look silly too. 
to try and do a lot of, to, to do something that God did not design for us to do, to try and read between the lines and, and figure out some um, amazing biblical code so that you can solve what it is. That's, that's not the way the scriptures were designed. That's not their intent. And when we misuse them, it just makes all of us look a little bit foolish. If anyone tells you that they know who the Antichrist is, they are wrong. Okay? So here's how you know if somebody's wrong, if they say they know. That's how you know. Um, for a couple of different reasons. One is because people have always been wrong, and second, because I don't believe in an, anti- an Antichrist at the end of time. Um, I believe in John's view of the Antichrist, that is, people who deny Jesus as the Son of God, or that the Son of God came in the flesh, that is, Antichrist. So, now that I've said to you, do not believe anyone who says they know who this person is, listen to me as I tell you that I don't fully, but sort of know who this person is. Um, <laughs> I, I, I do as, as, as I don't, I, like I said, the, the person I'm about to talk to you about, let's not confuse them. I'm not saying antichrist, but I do, I, there's some hints as to perhaps who the man of lawlessness might be. And, and I do, I kind of use, I think this is helpful, that, that when we talk about a scale of belief, our, our conviction on certain things. It's helpful to actually use that. More than just like straight up, I believe or I don't believe in this particular doctrine. A scale of belief, 1 to 10, or even kind of 10 to negative 10 all the way down, right? Uh, as to how great I believe this. And I would say my belief, like of my knowledge of who the Antichrist is, or sorry, not the Antichrist. Look, now I'm doing it. Um, the main of lawlessness is I'm putting it at about a 2, all right? So like... Do I believe that Jesus rose from the grave? Ten, all right? That's a ten. Um, do, I, do I believe that I know who the man of lawlessness is? That's a two, maybe a 1.7, all right? Um, but I, 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 I have a greater confidence in this than a lot of the other things that get thrown out for who the man of lawlessness might be. Um, one of the, so, so there are a number of ways in which this text here actually matches up with what we call the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse takes place in three of the Gospels, um, Mark 13, Matthew 24, and Luke 21. It is in Jesus' last week of his life, and he takes his disciples up on the side of the Mount of Olives that overlooks the city of Jerusalem. The the disciples were just bragging or or just kind of marveling at how amazing the temple was, how amazing the stones of that that big temple mount was and of the city there. And Jesus kind of tells them there will be a day when all of those things are going to be toppled over. And they say, what are you talking about? How are we going to know anything about this? And, And Jesus takes them on the side of the mountain. As they look over the city of Jerusalem, Jesus begins to describe this coming day. Um... She talked about this last, last year. Um, we were in the book of Mark, and when we got to Mark 13, we spent some time talking about it. I think we recorded it, if you want to try and listen to it. Um, I'll give you kind of a brief recap here. But both, um, both Jesus' teaching in the Olivet Discourse and uh, 2 Thessalonians 2 are very... They, they seem to use some similar language. They both use language from Daniel, from like Daniel 9 and Daniel 11. Um, that sounds similar. They seem to be kind of quoting from some similar or alluding to some similar passages. And, and here's the one thing we get from Jesus, I believe, in Mark 13. Jesus says, do not spend your time getting caught up in all kinds of crazy signs in the heavens and trying to figure out when the end is going to come. No one knows the hour of the day, but Jesus says this, know this, that there is one thing that must happen before the end comes. 
He says, nobody knows the day or the hour, but I'll tell you this. One thing must happen. And, and that one thing that I believe Jesus describes pretty clearly in, uh, in Mark 13 and Matthew 24 and Luke 21 is the destruction of Jerusalem, um, is, the, is the tearing down of the temple and the tearing down of the city of Jerusalem and its walls as a demonstration of uh, basically the, the consequences and the punishment that comes on the Jewish people for their rejection of the Messiah that they've been waiting for so long. Um, now hear me, there's some people, when we start talking about the judgment or destruction or whatever of the Jewish people, that they get nervous because that sounds kind of weird. It sounds, um, I don't know, slightly racially insensitive or something like that. I, I do not know how you can be a Christian and be anti-Semitic. Like, um, the one we worship was Jewish. Um, and, and all of his 12 apostles were Jewish. Most of our scriptures come from Jewish people. So like we ought to have a deep love for. And so I, when, I make the, when I say these things, I'm, I'm talking about stuff that Jesus says. And Jesus was not anti-Jewish because he was. Um, and so don't get nervous about that if, if that makes you feel weird. But, I, but Jesus talks about a coming destruction that will come on the city of Jerusalem. This takes place in A.D. 70, roughly 40-ish years after Jesus predicts it. Here's a really, really, really brief rundown of how that took place. For many, many years, Rome had ruled much of the Mediterranean world, including the region of Palestine. And the Jewish people hated this hated that they, as the people of God, were being overrun by these pagan Gentile people who were ruling and oppressing them. And, and so they longed for the day that the Messiah would come. They longed for the day that they could uh, mount up against their Gentile oppressors and, and gain their freedom back and come back to power. Um, and so this, this was, and it was happening during Jesus' day. You could, the tension was, was mounting. There's this group of people, one of his one of Jesus' followers is uh, called uh, the Zealot, Simon the Zealot, that he comes from this group that was very passionate for the Jewish people and wanted freedom, and, and this was kind of building up. It comes to a head in A.D. 66. Jewish-Roman tensions ran so high that a revolt breaks out, and Jewish rebels actually overran the military garrisons, the Roman military garrisons in Jerusalem. And all the Roman officials, including like King Herod, had to flee out of Jerusalem at that time. In 67, shortly after that, um, the, the general Vespasian and his son Titus invade Galilee, that's northern Palestine, and they begin conquering all the rebel strongholds. This is where the Jewish rebels have began to build up their, their strongholds, their hideouts, their headquarters, and they conquer all these areas, which forces them to flee um, down to the southern area of Palestine, into Judea, and specifically Jerusalem. One of the guys who flees under cover of darkness at night when the Romans come is one of the key leaders of the, the Jewish zealots, the leader of this rebellion. It's a guy by the name of John of Geshala. And John takes his group of ze um, zealots, and they rush down to Jerusalem to find um, to, to find safety because the, the rebels have kind of taken this place and it's a big walled city. So they rush down there and they set up their base there. The problem is that the Jews actually in the city itself are divided. There are some who believe that they should not be fighting against Rome, that Rome is too powerful or just that it works out for them. The Sadducees in particular, who kind of controlled the temple area, who's uh, the group that the high priesthood came from, um, 
they wanted, they kind of wanted to stick with Rome. That was working out well for them, and they thought, we can't do this. Of course, the zealots and, and others like them wanted to fight against them. And so a little bit of a civil war actually breaks out within the walls of Jerusalem. At the same time, the Romans come and they lay siege to Jerusalem while war is breaking out in there. John of Geshala and his band of zealots take over the Temple Mount, and they walk into the temple courts where no one but the priest is supposed to go. And in fact, they set up their headquarters in the middle of the temple itself. Um, in the middle of the Holy of Holies where nobody but the high priest is supposed to go. And only once every year is he supposed to go in there on the Day of Atonement. John of Geshala goes in there with his zealots. In the process of them setting up their headquarters over there, they slaughter thousands of Jews who are going there to worship in the temple. And this is an abomination. And we believe, actually, I believe that this is what Jesus is referring to when he talks about the abomination of desolation that will take place, um, is that he slars these people in here. And I, I believe with a 1.7 certainty uh, that John of Kishala is the man of lawlessness who mounts up a rebellion against the Roman Empire at this time and against the, and against the authority of the Jewish um, leaders at this time. If that is the case, then the restrainer at this time would have been the high, remember it talks masculine, one person, and neuter, a thing. And so I believe that the restrainer would have been, if this is the case, the high priest Ananus and the priesthood in general was kind of what was was pushing against John of Geshala at this time. That was the group that was trying to keep John from gaining control within Jerusalem at that time. But it, um, eventually, Ananus gets um, murdered in Jerusalem, I believe, by the zealots. And this is what Josephus actually talks about when he says that he got murdered. Josephus says this. See if this sounds similar to the way that Paul talks about the restrainer being removed. Um, and the rebellion coming. The death of Ananus was the beginning of the destruction of the city. And from that very day may be dated the overthrow of her wall and the ruin of her affairs, wherein they saw the high priest, Ananus, the procurer of their preservation. In, in other words, he's the one who restrained and kept the place safe. It says they saw him slain in the midst of their cities. And when he was slain, there was no more restraint left on the zealots. And they take over the city. As I said, actually, it was shortly after this in 70 AD that Titus besieges the city of Jerusalem for seven months. And during that time, the fighting amongst the Jews in the city actually results in a burning of their entire food supply. Also, during the Passover, Jewish people, there's some people who think this may be the delusion that is given to um, the people who go against God, that while the Romans are encamped around the city of Jerusalem, and while there's fighting in it, the Jewish people still come by the thousands to celebrate Passover there. And so it's not just the Jerusalem people living in it themselves. A number of Jewish people come and fill it up in the middle of the chaos, because you got to be there for Passover. That's part of what every good Jew does. And so they go in there at the same time. Josephus says that outside the city, once, um, once they started attacking it, that outside the city the Romans crucified so many Jews that they ran out of wood for crosses. And inside there was so much chaos, fighting, murder, famine, disease, and even cannibalism amongst the people as they tried to survive. That summer, the Romans finally breached the wall and thousands were slaughtered. They ransacked the city and burned the temple down to the ground. It was a brutal period. The, the, the um, benefit, I guess, of this description is I believe that in this way, Second Thessalonians seems to match the words of Jesus. 
in this way, the Thessalonians actually have a chance of knowing who the, who the restrainer is. Because Paul says, you know him. You know who I'm talking about. I've told you about this person. Um, and it also, I think, matches Paul's theme of judgment on the Jewish people for their persecution of Jesus and the church. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, they have persecuted him and the prophets, and, um, and now wrath is finally coming on them. And so it might make sense to me that in 2 Thessalonians, he's talking about that very thing when that happens. Um, but there is a third reason. Okay, So there's a... Two reasons I mentioned why it gets weird to, to, to assume that this is an end-time antichrist person. The first is that it causes, use, it causes us to read things into the text that aren't there. Uh, the second thing is it causes us to look foolish as we do it. The third thing, and this is probably most important, is it causes us to take our eyes off the main point of the text. Paul wrote a ton of stuff. Like a ton, like... The major contributor to our New Testament is Paul. I think 13 different letters. And only once in all of those writings did he think that he should write about this. Only one little section of Scripture do we have Paul writing about the man of lawlessness. And even here, it's not because he wants to talk about it, but he's, he's writing about him for the sake of a greater need. He brings it up to deal with a specific issue in the Thessalonican church, and this is that issue. The Thessalonians were losing hope. That's why Paul writes about the man of lawlessness. Not so they can know a lot about him, but because he wants to give them hope. Last week we saw that the Thessalonians were losing hope over this issue of justice. Why are we still suffering if we're serving God? Is he still with us? And Paul wrote to say, yes, you can trust that he's just and he's going to do what's right. This week we see that they are losing hope over whether or not God is really coming for them or whether or not he abandoned him. Scott said it. Verse 2, do not be panicked over some false prophecy or some fake letter that you heard from that was supposedly from us that says that the day of the Lord has already come. That Jesus already came and gathered up His people and you got left behind. Don't be panicked about that. That cannot be true. Paul says, I told you that that can't happen until the rebellion comes. And Paul wants them to catch, importantly, two things here. One, God has not left them behind. And God is in control. And I think that that's the main point of 2 Thessalonians 2. Paul makes it really clear that actually everything that is happening is happening according to God's timing. Um, and when you get to actually the end in 2 Thessalonians 8, when you get to the end of this description, or 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8, um, this description here of the man of lawlessness, it's really kind of anticlimactic. So you get all this talk about he sets himself up in the temple of God and he makes himself to be the one to worship and he, set, he opposes all other gods and he mounts this great and mighty rebellion and he does all these signs and miracles to try and deceive people. And then verse 8 comes and it says, And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing. And all of this comes to something pretty anticlimactic when the Lord steps on the scene and kills him with the breath of his mouth. Here's something that we see throughout history. When good and evil go toe-to-toe with one another, the outcome is often uncertain. I wish it were more certain. I wish it was one of those things where we knew every time good and bad go up against each other that good is always going to win. 
that good will always prevail and that good and right and honest men and women will come out on top, but that is not always the case. Often, actually, evil prevails. When good and evil go toe-to-toe, we do not know how it's going to turn out. But in the Scriptures, when God and evil go toe-to-toe, we always know how it's going to turn out. Consistently, the message through the Scriptures is when God and evil go toe-to-toe, it's not even a contest. There's never a moment where you've got to have your fingers crossed and wonder what the outcome is going to be. Here Paul says, all God has to do is breathe and the fight is over. That he kills this one with, with, his, come with his breath, he brings this person to nothing. And Paul says there is never any doubt. And when you read through the book of Revelation and, and, and the, the book of John, or and John describes these great and powerful things that look so incredible and so amazing, and the moment just Jesus steps on the scene, they come to nothing. There is no great battle of Armageddon where we wonder and wonder how it's going to turn out and we hope things work out okay. It is always like that God wins as soon as he is ready to. And Paul is, in this, in this book, I believe, fixing the Thessalonians' eyes on God in this letter. And so I think it's really important for us that we don't read 2 Thessalonians 2 and allow that chapter to move our eyes away from God into some future figure that we're trying to figure out who He is. Because the point is to fix our eyes on Him, to fix our eyes on God um, you guys, I'm going to have you know, you guys start getting ready here as I kind of tell you this real quick. This is why this chapter mattered for them, and this is why this chapter matters for you right now. Because as one, pa- uh, as one teacher said, um, what you hope for determines what you live for. Say that one more time. This is the message of 2 Thessalonians. What you hope for determines what you live for. And that is true when you live in Thessalonica and you're getting beat up every day for your faith and you are wondering if there's ever going to be justice and you're wondering if you made the right decision because things are not working out well for your family. What you hope for ultimately determines what you live for. And that is true in 2017 in America where things seem to be going well. And when you're going to class and you're studying to get a really great job somewhere and you're going to live somewhere in, in a country probably where things work out really well, what you hope for determines what you live for. And Paul wants to make this very clear. And so my, my hope when I read the book of 2 Thessalonians, my hope is that I do not end up spending all my time looking for some future figure who's going to step on the scene that i got to make sure I avoid or make sure that I protect myself from. My hope is that as I read this book, I spend my time gazing at the God who is sovereign over all of it and who is ultimately in control. And, and maybe, literally, remember, 1.7, that's my level of confidence over my prediction. There might be someone who comes in the future. And if so, cool. But I do know this, that when the Lord comes, that with the breath of his mouth, he brings that person to nothing. And, and so I trust, even if things end up being difficult or hard for Christians on the earth at that time, I trust that God is ultimately in control, that he is sovereign. And so we're going to take actually a little bit of time not uh, looking for some Um, some future figure in guessing, but instead looking at God and spending some time in worship. So let me pray, and then we'll sing and do that. Dear God, I I don't, I can't say a lot of things with certainty out of this passage. I can't say a lot of things with 100%. I know this is the way it's going to go, but I do know there is this one thing I can say for sure, and that is that um, 
that whatever may come, whether that was a person in the first century, or whether that's a person yet to come, or some empire in the first century, or some empire yet to come, that it is no match for you. Um, and that anything that goes against your church, why we may suffer, that ultimately that we will overcome in you, that we overcome because of Jesus. And I pray that you would um, help us in this room to fix our eyes squarely on you and that we would not let hardship turn our eyes away from you. And, and maybe more importantly than that, Lord, that you would not let um, comfort and ease turn our eyes away from you, that we wouldn't end up putting our hope in um, degrees or in money uh, or in a good job or... or anything else, Lord, that you would fix our eyes on you and that we would put our hope first and foremost in you, that that hope would determine the way we live for the rest of our lives. God, do in us what we can't do ourselves. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen.